Well, good morning, and uh, my name is John, one of the pastors here, and uh, glad to have you all worshiping with us on this beautiful Sunday morning. I'd invite you to open up to our scripture passage, which is Exodus 32, verse 15 through 33, 6. Uh, Exodus 32, 15 through 33, 6. Starting in verse 15. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, There's the sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, It is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. And then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, What did these people do to you that you led them into such great a sin? Do not be angry, my Lord. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold or jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Moses saw that the people were running wild, and that Aaron had led them, let them get out of control, and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side. Go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded. And that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers. And he has blessed you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but I will now go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, What a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go. Lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people who you brought up out of Egypt, and go to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go with you, because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, You are stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. And this is God's word. 
Uh, let's pray. Father, uh, we ask that you would speak to us in this moment. Lord, you know our hearts. Uh, you know the baggage that everyone came with this morning. You know what is distracting us in this moment. You know what our fears are. You know what weighs on our hearts. Uh, you know our apathies, Lord. And we pray that your word would be alive and active and speak into each one of our hearts today. And we pray that your word would work in us a work of new creation to build us up in Christ and help us to look more and more like Jesus. And only you can do this, and we ask that you would, Father. And so we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, uh, anybody else get that stomach bug that seems to be uh, making its rounds uh, around? I know a handful of people did it in the first service. Uh, I got it about a week and a half ago. I felt bad in the morning. I went into work, and by lunchtime, I just wanted to go home and lay in my bed and go to sleep. And no one else in my family got sick, so we just thought, oh, I must have ate something different than everybody else. But then about three, four days later, actually last Sunday morning, Lisa woke up and felt bad. And then that Sunday afternoon, Luke got it. And then I think Monday, early in the middle of the, or in the, middle of the night, Haley started throwing up. And then just even yesterday, Molly started feeling the stomach bug. And when you have kids and one of them gets sick, it feels like just watching dominoes fall. <laughs> Eventually, they are all going to get it. It's just a matter of time, how far those dominoes are spaced out. And stomach bugs are the worst in a family because you just know it's coming and there's no way to avoid it. And every meal you ask, you start to feel a little queasy and wonder, is this the meal that I'm going to see again? Uh, stomach bugs are contagious. And in a similar way, sin is contagious. I recently heard someone describe kind of the problems of our world this way, that sin starts with lies from Satan that play into our disordered desires that then spread into society so it becomes normalized. And we don't even recognize sin as sin anymore. Sin is this highly infectious disease that unless it's contained, it will overtake a society. And that's what we see in our passage here. Now, this passage isn't the easiest passage for us to read. It's one that makes us feel uncomfortable. God's actions seem drastic. Moses goes and blesses the people for killing even their sons and family members. This isn't the easiest passage for us to swallow. But I, I want you to stick with me through it because it has this really essential message for us. And it's this, God is containing sin so it won't hurt us anymore. God is containing sin, so it won't hurt us anymore. And we're going to look at this under three points. First, the false joy of sin, sin's spread, and then the consequences of sin. So first, the joy, false joy of sin. Last week, we saw this incident where the Israelites made a golden calf and started worshiping it and, and saying, this is your God, Israel. And God saw that from atop the mountain and threatened to do to Israel what he had done to the world in the flood, that he was going to wipe all of them out and start off with someone better, Moses in this case. But Moses stood in the gap. We saw that Moses actually represented God before God. And we got this inner picture, this peek behind the curtains to how God's justice and mercy come together. And we learned that God is always faithful to his promises. 
And so now Moses is heading back down from that and to see what is going on. And Joshua was with him, and, and they, before they can see what's going on, they hear it. And Joshua thinks, man, is there a fight going on down there? Did, did the Israelites get ambushed while we were up here on the mountain? What's going on? But Moses knows what's going on, and he comes up with a little song or poem. It is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. And remember, after they built this calf, Aaron then decided the next day, we're going to host a big party. And it was described that this way, that the people got up the next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. After this, they celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in revelry. This may have been the most fun the people have had in a long time. They're finally able to let loose and have a good time. They even write some new drinking songs. When we participate in sin, it's because we've bought into the lie of that sin. Sin always comes with a promise. This is going to be fun. This is going to be more exciting than your dull life. This is going to be an escape from the present pain. Sin offers a ray of false hope in the darkness. And the reason that every one of you, and me included, continue to indulge in sin is because part of it is pleasurable. It gives you an escape. It makes you feel good, if even for just a moment. It lifts you out of the darkness and makes you feel a little bit better. You can imagine the Israelites. And this is the most fun that we can ever remember having. And it's the same with us. You know, why is it that you feel the need to take that, you know, second glance at a beautiful woman that walks by or meditate on those images on a computer screen. Well, indulging in that, it feels good. It can numb your pain. It makes you forget yourself, if even just for a moment. Why are you so discontent in life, continually dreaming of something new, something better, something different? Well, it's because there's something in your present circumstances that you don't want to have to deal with, that isn't fulfilling you. Why do you always have someone that you're angry with? Because having someone to have as a mental punching bag in your brain feels good. Why do you get consumed with so many hours spent on TV or video games? It's because it's an escape from the problems right in front of you. Sin works its way into our lives by it, it, it knows where you're discontent, it knows where you feel pain, and it says, here's something better, here's a way to not feel so bad. Sin doesn't sell snow to Eskimos, it, give, it gives them a heater. And the sin in your life is offering you something as well. Every one of us, we have areas in our life where we're hurt, where things are incredibly depressing, places that bring you loads of anxiety. And we need to be aware that sin is crouching at the door and it's ready to offer temporary relief to that pain. That is the crafty nature of the serpent. It is why sin so easily slips into our lives because it feels good. It, it fulfills a need we have. Part of the reason it's so compelling is because it's based off a half-truth, a twisted truth. If you remember last week, the people made an offering that was similar to the offering that God was going to call the people to make, where they would give their gold in order to construct his tabernacle. 
And instead, they take that gold to construct the calf. They make this idol that takes the place of the Ark of the Covenant. Aaron then builds an altar in front of it, just like they were supposed to build an altar in front of the tabernacle. And then the people come and, and worship. They sing songs, which should remind us of what they do after they're saved out of Egypt, back in Exodus 15.1. They make it through the Red Sea. The army of Pharaoh is humiliated, and they sing songs. The people of Israel sing this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. He has hurled both the horse and the rider into the sea. And then in chapter 15, verse 20, then Miriam, the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine and led all the women as they played their tambourines and danced. Sin so often works its way into our hearts by offering imitations of things that are good, counterfeits of what we really need. And it does it with free same-day shipping. So you don't have to wait on God to fulfill it. And that goes back to the original sin with Adam and Eve. That look, here you can get something beyond what God has offered and you don't have to wait on God for it. You don't have to take his way, which takes so long and, and you wonder if he even hears you. It's hanging right in front of you. All you need to do is reach out and grab it and you can be fulfilled. And so Moses sees this party and he sees the people indulging in this false worship service. And the text uses the same language that was used of God just a little bit earlier. He's angry now. And he takes those stone tablets that he's holding and throws them on the ground, breaking them. And it's symbolic. Remember, the, the Ten Commandments, as we have said, were the blueprints for this beautiful community that God was going to build with his people. And now that community has been shattered. And the severity of this act is highlighted in the text telling us several times that these weren't Moses' notes that he took while God was speaking and say, hey, here's the notes I got from God's speech. No, what does it tell us? Several times, these were written in God's own hand. This was God's handwriting for his people. And now it lays broken on the ground. One fun little detail, we often think of these tablets as you know, each containing half of the commandments. That's often how they're displayed. And yet the language here with them being written on both sides of the stone, and even how it's translated in the passage where it says, with the two tablets of the covenant law, probably indicate actually there were two copies of the Ten Commandments that Moses was bringing down off the mountain. And actually, it looks very similar to how we do contracts today, right? This was God's contract, his blueprints. And just like one party receives the contract and then the other party receives the contract, it was the same thing with these two tablets. But now, that contract lies broken on the ground. And this leads us to our second point. Sins spread. Moses goes to Aaron, his older brother, and says, Aaron, when I left you, I, I left you with explicit instructions. Wait here until I get back. What happened? How could you lead the people into doing all these awful things? We can imagine Aaron kind of Stumbling over his words, well, you know, brother, you, you know how stubborn these people are and how easily they always choose the wrong thing. They came and pressured me and told me to make them gods, and, and they didn't know what had happened to you. They thought maybe you'd run off, and so they needed some new gods to help them on this journey. And, and so then they brought me their gold, and we threw it into the fire, and you won't imagine what happened next. I mean, it was, it was a miracle. A calf jumped out. I mean, what were we supposed to do with that? 
Moses doesn't even dignify Aaron's tall tale with this response. Instead, he just looks around and he sees the people all running wild and says, this is disgraceful. I've got to stop this somehow. And so he goes to the entrance of the camp where everybody could see him, a prominent place, and he cries out, whoever is with the Lord, come to me. Now, this is where it gets a little bit hard to understand all of what's going on. But first thing we're told is that Aaron cries out, whoever, offering it to everybody, is with the Lord, come to me. And then it says, all the Levites came and rallied to him. And then Moses gives these fairly strict instructions. Go back and forth through the camp, killing your brother, friend, and neighbor. And 3,000 people are killed. Now, this is a lot of people, right? This is hard for us, although it's not all that unheard of in any sort of conflict. Take even just D-Day where some 4,500 allied troops were killed in less than a day, not to mention the four to 9,000 German troops. Actually, one of the questions I had as I was studying this passage is, why were so few people killed? Because we get the sense that most of the Israelites are involved in this idol worship. They had to get enough gold to build this calf, which would have required a lot of people participating. And then Moses, he instructs the Levites to go through the entire camp, right? Comb the camp, which seems to indicate it wasn't just, you know, that one tribe of the family was going wild over in their corner of the camp. No, this had infested the entire camp. So uh, some people get punished with being killed. But then God still sends a plague to punish others for their sins. So why do some people get really severe punishment and why do others seem to get off relatively minor? We actually have three groups in our passage, and each group seems to get a different treatment. There are those first, that group of people that responded to Moses' call, and they are with the Lord. Then there are those who are killed by the Levites, and then there are those, which is presumably the largest amount of people, that are struck by this plague. And what differentiates these groups? Why do some experience no consequences, some severe consequences? And where does Aaron fall into this? That's the other big question, right? Like Aaron, as the kind of you know, temporary leader of the Israelites who lets all this happen, he seems to bear a bulk of the responsibility. He's the one who had the idea, bring me the gold. He's the one who fashioned it into an idol. He's the one that built an altar. And he's the one that then came up with the idea of having a party to celebrate the next day. And yet, it seems he gets off scot-free. What happens to him? Now, again, it's not entirely clear, but this is what makes most sense to me as we look at the passage. When Moses goes to the front of the camp and he calls out to everyone who is with the Lord, come to me, and we learn all of the Levites come to him, my guess is that Aaron, who was also a Levite, was included in that group. Aaron was one of the ones who ran to Moses. And when Moses cries out, whoever is for the Lord, he is offering the people a chance to repent. That's what's going on here. That's why it says he goes to the, to the front of the camp, to the gate, to a prominent place where people can see him. And he's saying, guys, stop. Here's your chance to end this now. Here's your chance to recognize what you've done is wrong, to turn and come back to me. And everybody could have done that. Nobody died without first rejecting, their, rejecting uh, repentance before God. 
And so then those who feel that conviction come. And my guess is Aaron wasn't the only Levite who participated in all this. Probably a lot of Levites participated. And yet, they realize when Moses cries out that what they had done was wrong. What we see here, and it's actually the same for us today. What makes someone a Christian isn't that they don't sin. Every single one of us sin all the time. We're deceiving ourselves if we aren't sinning, if we don't think we're sinning. What makes someone a Christian is that they realize what they did is wrong, and that they repent from that sin. They don't live the rest of their life thinking they haven't screwed up. And what we see here is it is a dangerous thing to refuse to repent. And that's the danger of sin in general because sin can sometimes get so normalized that it hardens your conscience and you look around and everyone else is doing it and you say, well, how can it be so wrong? Everybody else is doing it. Or maybe you think, yeah, I feel a little bit bad about this, but just one more day, I'll, I'll change tomorrow. One of the questions for us is where have you grown comfortable with sin in your life? Where are you not struggling with it? Where have you thought, well, I'll, I'll deal with this tomorrow? Where are you actually sad at the thought of fully getting rid of some particular sin in your life because deep down you realize, I actually kind of like what it gives me. It kind of feels good. It's a good escape. Now, after that call to repentance and all those who realize what they did was wrong, who want to be forgiven, come to Moses and are called to go through the camp to essentially eradicate the sin to keep it from spreading. And again, remember, nobody had to die. Everyone was given the chance to repent, to avoid the consequences of their sin. In the end, it's never our first sin that ruins us. It's a refusal to acknowledge that what we've done is wrong. It's a refusal to give our sin to Jesus. It's not sin, per se, that keeps us from God. It's pride. It's thinking, I can deal with the sin on my own. Or it's not that bad, or whatever it might be. But then the next question is, well, why did 3,000 people die while others who were guilty because God says he will punish them for their sins with a plague don't die? Well, my guess is, is that these people were kind of the most, the, the instigators of this. Their hearts were the most hardened. That, that in their hearts, they had already rejected Yahweh as their God. And what God is doing here is he's just letting the result of that rejection come a little bit earlier in their life than it would for no most people. They were ground zero for the spread of sin. And unless that sin were dealt with, it would continue to bring inf that infection to the rest of the community. Well, then how did the Levites know who these people were? Maybe it's because they were there and they saw it, but one interesting answer comes from what Moses did earlier in, chapter, in verse 20. Moses burns the golden calf, and some, from the language of how they built it, it, it was very likely it was made of wood and then overlaid with gold. So it was something that you could burn even in the altar that they made. And then there were all this ash that was mixed with gold, and he takes that ash and what he probably does is he sprinkles it into wherever the people were getting their water from in the desert. Whether it was a pool or a spring, he 
takes it and mixes it in there. That way everybody is forced to drink it because they need to drink. And in one way, he's getting rid of that. Now, Numbers, 15, uh, Numbers 5, 16 to 20, gives us an interesting insight into what may have happened with this. It gives a set of instructions in, in Numbers 5 for, let's say that uh, someone, a woman, has been accused of committing adultery, but there's no witnesses. How do we make sure that we don't punish her if she's innocent, and that if she has committed the sin, she, it is dealt with properly? And so God sets up this system that's very odd for us, but again, they didn't have ways to test these things like we do. And, and so the priest is to take some dust from the tabernacle floor, which would have ash in it from the sacrifices and incense being burned there, mix it with water, and then she is to drink this bitter water. And if that bitter water doesn't affect her, it means that she is innocent of the sin. But if she is affected by it, it is a sign that she has actually sinned in this way. And so several commentators wonder if what is happening here is kind of an earlier form of that test. Moses makes a huge batch of bitter water that everyone is forced to drink. And then the Levites go through the camp to see who has the stomach bug. And these people were the primary instigators of what went on. And then there's the last group. The people who, in verse 35, it says, And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Now, notice it doesn't say if anyone died from this plague. Usually, often, that is noted in Scripture. Maybe nobody died from this plague. It was meant to serve as a warning, to give them a taste. This is where sin will lead you. In the end, it leads to death. It was an instance of God's discipline for the people. Right? Hebrews 12.10, God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it is happening. It is painful. But afterwards, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. Now, when you face suffering in your life, it doesn't always mean that it's because of some sin in your life. Sometimes God brings incredible suffering uh, and you've done nothing wrong. Sometimes God brings suffering in your life to warn you, to keep you from going down a path. We sometimes don't know, but here's the thing that we are all called to do. Don't waste your suffering. See the suffering that you have in your life as an opportunity to grow more dependent upon God and His grace. And even if you haven't done anything wrong, none of us are perfect, and we all have ways in which we are called to be more like Jesus. And instead of growing bitter at your suffering and say, I've given so much for you, God, why am I getting this? I don't deserve this. We learn to become dependent on Jesus through our suffering, and so be transformed to look even more like Christ. And for us today, we are in a time of a plague. Not as severe as many historic plagues, but still a plague. Maybe one like the one here, where so many people were affected and yet no one died. And if all that you've learned through all the effects of COVID over the last two years are new ways to get angry at the government, or angry at others who aren't doing what you think they should be doing, 
or angry at everything else that's going on, you have wasted the suffering of these last two years. Like an incredible question all of us need to ask is, how have I grown in godliness because of the suffering that COVID has brought? Either from getting the sickness or the restrictions that were imposed or the impacts of laws or restrictions from COVID. If all you've done is gotten frustrated, you've wasted the opportunity that God has given you to grow in the suffering. And this brings us to our third point, the consequences of sin. First, consequence. Even in God's discipline, he reminds them of his promise. He says, go to the land that I promised your descendants, that land that is flowing with milk and honey. God's, the place that God is taking his people is so much better than anything that sin provides. He is leading us to a land flowing with milk and honey. He is leading us to a good place. And yet what we do is we always want cheap candy instead of the milk and honey of God. Because we don't want to take the journey to get there. We want to be fixed right now. We want a good fix right now. And sin, though, has consequences. God says, I'm going to be faithful to my promise. You'll get there. But I'm not going to go with you. And so God tells these people to take off their ornaments. And why is this? I think the New Living Translation is helpful in understanding. Verse 6, it says, So from the time they left Mount Sinai, the Israelites wore no more jewelry or fine clothes. God's making a distinction. He said, you know what? For the first part of this journey, you guys walked out of Egypt like victors, carrying the, war, the spoils of war and all that jewelry and the gold that they had given you, and you looked like a victory parade. But now you're going to look like a funeral procession because of the ways that sin has screwed things up. And as a reminder, I'm faithful. You're going to get there, but you're not going to come as the victors you once were. Sin always has consequences. It promises joy. It promises freedom. It promises a great party. And you wake up the next morning with a hangover. It ends in sadness. It can never deliver on its promises. It's a flash in the pan. It always leaves you worse off than when you started. But there's one other consequence of sin that's right in the middle of our passage when Moses goes back up to the mountain to plead with God. And he says, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. He doesn't minimize what they've done. He's saying, this was really bad. But please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book that you have written. Lord, this sin is really bad. But I ask you, if someone's not going to make it to the promised land, I know there has to be consequences for this. You're a holy God. You can't overlook these things, but let the consequences fall on me so that they can enjoy your blessings. Let me die out in the desert so those people can go and enjoy the milk and honey. Sin has to be contained. It's got to go somewhere. Moses is getting some sense of that. God, put that sin on me. Let it end with me. Or else sin will continue to spread if it's not dealt with. This is why you can get rid of 99.9% .9 of the sin in your life and it still isn't good enough for heaven. It still isn't good enough for God. If you have even an inkling of temptation, man, I really want to take that second glance at that beautiful woman. I really want to share this juicy piece of gossip. That even desire to do that is far too much sin for God to let you into his home. 
Why? Because God is building a new world without any sin. Revelation 21, 27. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. You see, if, if God lets even the smallest sin in, like stealing a cookie from the cookie jar, or stealing an apple from an apple tree, that's all over. That new world will soon be corrupted with the variance of sin, and it will lead to unimaginable evil, and it will look just as messed up as our world does today. It won't be heaven. It'll be good for a little bit, and then it'll turn into hell. God is building a new home for his people where he says, there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone, not for a week, not for a month, forever. And that is where God is taking his people. And Moses has a sense of that. Lord, I know the sin needs someplace to go, so put it on me and my life. Because God's standards are so high that it is impossible for any of us to make it. I said, even the desire for sin is not enough because that will grow and morph and ruin it all. And so the only way that we can get to that better world, that place where these things are truly gone forever, is never on our own, but only through one who is better than us. And when God searched the world and he could not find a suitable substitute, he stepped forward to become that substitute. And he did what Moses couldn't. Why did God reject Moses' plea? Because he wasn't good enough. But God knew a better one was coming. And he would put every last drop of that sin on Christ. It's put so powerfully in Isaiah 53, starting in verse 3. He, Christ, was despised and rejected a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised, and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away, and we have left God's paths to follow our own. You see what Isaiah is saying there is that if you were to look at Jesus' beaten, bloody, rejected body, if you were to behold him on the cross where sin is so rapidly turning his pristine body into a corpse and rotting him, our instinct is to look the other way and you say, that is horrible. I've never seen something so ugly. And what does Isaiah tell us, though? That what is happening there is Jesus has actually taken the ugliest, deepest, darkest things about you and placed them all on himself and died with them so that you could be free. It's your sin that he's wearing. That's the only way we can make it into that better world. You can't do it on your own. You can try and never be good enough. But what Christ offers in his grace is he offers to claw the worst out of you, to put it on himself, and say you are finally 
and fully forgiven. And you, through the power of my spirit, will be made holy from head to toe so that you can go into that world where death is gone forever. Christ is not just your example, but he offers to become your sin so that you can become the righteousness of God. And this is what makes the God of the Bible different from every other God out there. God doesn't look down from heaven and hurl down lightning bolts on all of us who are screwing up and saying, you guys better do more to make me happy, offer more sacrifices, try harder. No, what does he do? He doesn't demand our life. He doesn't demand you sacrifice yourself if you want to show how much you love me. He becomes the sacrifice. He steps forward. He lets his body be burnt. He lets himself be cut to pieces so that you can be made whole. He is the one who is killed so that you can go and live in that land flowing with milk and honey. Friends, every one of us were born with a sickness unto death. And that sin feeds us lies every day about what you need to be happy and fulfilled. And we are all going through life building these little golden calves of money or success or a family that looks a certain way or all our accomplishments. And we think, this will make me worthy. This will save me. This will make me feel good. But one day that party will be over and the curtain will be pulled back and those things will be revealed for what they are. Death in disguise. And right now, Jesus is calling out to every one of you by name. Like Moses was calling at the gate of that camp, come to me, my arms are open. There is no sin that I cannot forgive. There is no screw up that is too big for me not to take care of. He has taken it all. And what keeps you from coming to him, it's never your sin, it's your pride. Because you don't want to admit how th screwed up things are in your heart. You want to think you can handle it on your own. To come to Christ is the ultimate act of humility because you realize I can't do it. But there is no safer place to be than on your knees before our God because he will lift you up and he will embrace you forever. Hosea 2, 18 and 19. I will make you mine forever, showing you righteousness and justice, unfailing love and compassion. I will be faithful to you and make you mine and you will finally know me as the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us to know your loving arms. Help us to stop being afraid of admitting the darkness that is inside every one of us. Help us to stop lying to ourselves about how bad things really are. And to maybe, maybe even for the first time here in this moment, to be honest about how helpless we are. And to be in a place where we realize we need you more than we ever imagined. And Father, show us the great comfort there is in that honesty. And in laying down and realize there's nothing we can bring. And you delight in lifting up those who finally realize that. Father, wash us in that deep, deep love of Jesus. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. And our time of confession is that moment where you can be honest.
There is no sin in your life that Christ does not already know and he has not already put on himself on the cross. And that means there's nothing you can say that will cause him to turn away from you. But he only opens his arms all the more and says, come to me, my child. I'm going to read this prayer and then invite you to pray silently. God of everlasting love, we confess that we have been unfaithful to our covenant with you and with one another. We have worshiped other gods, money, power, greed, and convenience. We have served our own self-interest instead of serving only you and your people. We have not loved our neighbor as you have commanded, nor have we rightly loved ourselves. Forgive us, gracious God, and bring us back into the fullness of our covenant with you and one another.